Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. On this episode, the topic is religious pluralism in South Africa. And my guest is Dr. Lee Shea Salma Sharnik Udemans. Dr. Sharnik Udemans is senior researcher in the Desmond Tutu Center for Religion and Social Justice at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. With degrees in religious studies and media from the University of Cape Town, she also has extensive experience working in television production. Dr. Sharnik Udemans researches, teaches, and supervises in the areas of religious diversity, pluralism, the political economy of religion, new religious movements, and the media. In this episode, we discuss her career in filmmaking, apartheid in South Africa, religious pluralism, and the concept known as rainbowism. I absolutely loved learning about South Africa, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Lee Shea Salma Sharnik Udemans, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I am so excited that you're here to participate in my 2021 Sacred Rights cohort series. To start off today, I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit, so they know who you are and what you do. So I am the senior researcher in the Desmond Tutu Center for Religion and Social Justice at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, I'm trained in the study of religion and also in media studies. Um, in a previous life, I was a filmmaker and I now research, I teach and supervise in the area of religious diversity, pluralism, political economy of religion, and obviously religion and the media. I'm also a mother to a four-year-old and I'm an amateur um, herbalist and essential oil maker. Excellent. Um, that's what I do. 
Excellent. Well, I also know that your university has a really specific history with regards to South Africa. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that as well before we get moving on your other areas of research. Thanks so much. So the University of the Western Cape is a really important institution in the history of South Africa. Um, it is a stronghold for the struggle against apartheid. And so as a scholar who, who works, who wants to, to have a public scholarship profile, but also who's um, committed to, to um, embodying the ideals of social justice in, in my research and in my teaching, um, it's a really special place to, to be. So I feel really lucky to be teaching at that university. Excellent. Well, Something that I'm really curious about when I was reading your bio before we got on the uh, on the call here is your past within filmmaking and the media itself. And something that I am super curious about is, you know, your past in this field, because it likely informs a lot of what you do within religion, because you learn so many skills within working within the media. And now that you are a researcher, I would imagine that you've got a lot of skills that you picked up in your media days that translate over well to how you communicate on your issues. So I want to know about this career path that you followed uh, within television production, documentary, and tell me a little bit about those years. I'm super curious about what projects you did. Fantastic. Um, so this is probably the most exciting part of my life. Everything is downhill from you. But <laughs> <laughs> so... I think it was in 2007, um, I just graduated with my undergrad um, where I was majoring in religious studies and media studies um, at the University of Cape Town, which is uh, a really good uh, university. It's ranked number one in the country, number one on the continent. And, um, you know, there's, there's this joke about religious studies graduates not being employable. Um, but I was really lucky because I had this media studies background. And so I was just about to graduate and someone said that they needed a researcher or research coordinator for um, a television production company that was producing a children's television program about religion in South Africa. Mm. And they didn't want someone who had a confessional background. They wanted someone who kind of, you know, had academic knowledge on how to think and teach about religion. Um, I don't know if I had any of that, but I said I did. And my certificate said that I did. Yeah. And um, this kind of Ivy League-ish institution got me in the door. And I was employed and my job was to provide research support for this um, children's television program. And um, the material that I would gather would be used by script writers to create this dialogue for um, these two puppets and these two puppets and the whole show was really um, modeled on Sesame Street, right? And so I was getting information to be made into dialogue for these two puppets to teach South African children about like religious diversity in the country. And later on, I would work as, so I would first work as a researcher, then I'd work as a scriptwriter, and later on, um, I would work as a director producer. The plot twist here is that I think this has all got to do with really good mentorship because all of this happened in a really short period of time. We're talking about 18 to 24 months full time which in the film and television industry, it's the equivalent of slogging for like 12 to 18 hours a day. So I had a really good mentor because I could easily have just been relegated to the grunt work, but they actually made me do real work, right? They, they allowed me to do some of the real intellectual work that was necessary to shape the programming. And I worked with this really amazing producer who really respected my vision on religion, 
uh, my ethics around gender, uh, my inherently kind of feminist intersectional framing towards the world in general. Yeah. And um, whether the national broadcaster for whom we were producing this, you know, this work, um, whether or not they, they cared about those things, that's another story. But that was part of my kind of, you know, my experience in, in the film industry. It started with that children's um, program. And then I worked on almost all of the religious broadcasting um, programs that were available. And that saw me traveling from everywhere in South Africa to just document how people were experiencing and expressing um, religion. And, but two things led me back to university. The first was that I spoke to one of my, the lecturer that I was most interested, the professor I was most interested in impressing, um, you know, and I, and I wanted to tell him about this work that I was doing. And, you know, I spoke to him and I told him about the absurdities of like television production. And he went back and he was like, oh, well, you know, these puppets that you are curating, they're actually scholars of religion. And this whole enterprise that you're working in is, a project in the political economy of the sacred. And I was like, oh, this is this is pretty cool. Um, and I thought about it, like, you know, I thought, yeah, there, there could be something here that was researchable. And I was, you know, and I and I always just kept it at the back of my mind. The second big turning point was when I went to prison. Mm. And I didn't commit a crime. I <laughs> I pitched a documentary about religion in prison right yeah and somehow the national broadcaster decided that they wanted to make this documentary so they gave me the money to make the documentary which meant that i actually had to spend time in prison yeah and i spent five days filming in one of the most notorious prisons in the world polesmore prison in cape town south africa wow and um it shifted my idea of um, religion and media entirely because I finally understood that religious diversity was not just about the presence of multiple religions or even about multiple religious belonging, but that it was about the diverse ways. And when I say diverse now, I mean really, really diverse ways in which religion is experienced and expressed across time and space. And the ways in which these prisoners were engaging religion was just completely wild and wonderful in so many ways. And in other ways, it was completely mundane and banal. Um, but for the purposes of television production and of public broadcasting, we were only allowed to tell a particular story. Mm. And that story was curated and that story was sanitized. And that was the version that was flighted on national television. And it was really clean and it was a beautiful, you know, story with a narrative arc. And it didn't really relay the, the real experience of what it was like to speak to hardened criminals about the experiences with religion. Mm. And so disturbed by this experience in prison and then also intrigued by my professors or my old professors um, kind of incisive reading of the new context in which I found myself working as a newly minted like graduate. Um, less than, yeah, less than six months after that, I quit my job and I registered for postgraduate studies and the rest, as they say, is it's history. 
I, I love the with the way that you had a couple of core moments that sort of led you into being like, well, I want to take this into a different direction in a way that is it, it feels like those experiences made you understand the ways that you wanted to tell these stories in your way and not have other people in like post-production telling the story that you experienced and like getting it in a way that you didn't understand. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. That, that seems like a limitation of that. So I'm glad that I'm glad to hear that. Well, let's move on to some of your actual work that you've done since then. Um, I'm curious about your areas of expertise of working on religious diversity, pluralism in the media. And I want to know about that post media experience of going back into postgraduate education and tell me a little bit about some of the turning points through your journey while you were, you know, getting through your programs, uh, maybe some important people along the way who, who guided you. And I'm just curious about that story as well. So, um, yeah, like, I think that there's a, there's an, for me, the personal and the political and the professional are just like, you know, they all kind of like, they they blend and they blur together. Again, that's my own feminist orientation towards the world. And so to a large part, you know, Greg, um, it's, there's birth and there's background, right? So like in South Africa, I, well, you know, it's a highly racialized context, um, it's a very divided society. Um, it's a society that is also deeply patriarchal. And I'm a person of color and I come from a lineage of, of women who were leaders in their own rights, whether it was in the domestic, well, predominantly in the domestic um, sphere because there weren't many opportunities for, for, for women of color in South Africa. But I also, I come from, from a people who were oppressed and suppressed, you know? Um, and besides that, that history, in terms of living in South Africa today, um, yeah, we, we still face so many challenges. And, um, you know, I'm reading this, this, this book called um, The New Apartheid, and it makes the argument that apartheid is it never ended, that it was just actually privatized. And it's a really compelling um, argument, but also just in terms of lived experiences, you know, we, as people of color, as women of color working in the, the university, um, I face challenges all the time, whether it's based on my race or my gender or, um, you know, and or based on the racist assumptions of, of, of people who question whether women or women of color have a space in the institution. That's just a part of my, my lived reality. Um, and I could never really express this the way that I could, but with the Fees Must Fall movement, which started with the Roads Must Fall movement, which is the student uprisings of 2015 and 2016, um, that was a real turning point in my own own career. And that's when I realized, not just in my career, I was finishing up my PhD, but also just in my own life. And I realized that as a, as a woman of color in the institution of the academy, um, I realized that my work was not only important, but that it was urgent. And and, and that urgency came not only from my social location, but from my epistemological orientation. So I am concerned with um, doing the kinds of work that works from the margins inward, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with um, responding to, to um, 
normative assumptions about what it means to be a human being. And as a scholar of religion, uh, that means that I'm always trying to think about the ways in which everybody is included or some people are excluded, right? Yeah. And so um, it's about questioning in the South African context, it's about questioning the particular religious sensibilities and sensitivities um, that come with living in a state that is essentially Christo-normative in its culture and its orientation, but is constitutionally supposed to protect religious diversity. It's about living in a context where we don't face overt um, kind of um, iterations of violence, but where violence, in many cases, violence on the basis of religion, it comes across as microaggression. So um, it's about noticing, it's about noticing um, the things that other people are not noticing, so to speak, but the things that are part of the, the lived realities of, of marginalized people. Um, I think sometimes we have a lot more patience for diversities of other persuasions. So maybe in South Africa, we've, we've spent a lot of time um, on racial diversity. Um, we are spending more and more time, necessary time, on issues around gender and sexual diversity. But when it comes to the topic of religious diversity, I've often found that um, it's, it's historicized. It's like we are a religiously diverse society, so it's fine. But actually, we don't problematize and we don't ask too many questions about what that religious diversity really looks like and how it's experienced and expressed um, by people who are not a part of the, the mainstream religious culture. So well, let's, yeah, let's talk about some of those pieces of work because I've read a couple of things recently that address exactly those topics that you have reported on. And so a, a couple of them uh, involve South Africa, um, but there's one called a call to action to keep South Africa's religious rainbow. And another called Religion, the Final Frontier of the Rainbow Nation. And outside of South Africa, I'm not sure if the term rainbowism has, like, I've never heard that before, but I loved learning something brand new from your work. So the origin and term Rainbow Nation will likely be a good place to begin here. So what is the Rainbow Nation and what is this concept of rainbowism for those out there who have never heard the term? So, so earlier you you would have heard that I, I I work in the Desmond Tutu Center for Religion and Social Justice, and um, Desmond Tutu actually is the originator of the, the the Rainbow Nation term. It's one of the first people to refer to South Africans as the Rainbow People of God, um, and even though uh, we work under the auspices of his name, uh, we are allowed to be obviously critical of, of his ideas. And this has been a sticking point for me because I mean, the <laughs> rainbow nation is it's, it's a, I mean, I, I, you know, the first time I hear this term in my life is, you know, I'm maybe seven or eight living off the fumes of apartheid. South Africa has just become a democracy. And every Sunday, instead of us being able to watch like the little bit of American television that has infiltrated into South African society, our parents made us watch the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? That mm -hmm. was um, the, so the highlights kind of appeared on a Sunday um, afternoon. And I mean, it was a great historical moment, but when you're seven or eight, you don't want to watch that. You want to watch fun stuff. And sure. I remember watching Desmond Tutu um, cry and watching him weep and really feel emotional about reconciling the, the nation. And so from that seven-year-old 
little girl's perspective to, to the person who I am today. Um, the Rainbow Nation, it's a vision, it's a memory, it's a dream, it's a promise, it's a fantasy, it's a myth, it's a narrative, it's a discourse, it's a rhetoric, it's a slogan. It was a vision of what South Africa was supposed to be, right? Um, that after apartheid, all the different cultures, because apartheid was completely about separate development, right? So as there was a South Africa for white people, a South Africa for black people, a South Africa for colored people, South Africa for Indian people. But the vision of the Rainbow Nation was that all of us could come together and we could live in peace and harmony. And that peace and harmony presupposed tolerance, acceptance, appreciation, and um, an understanding of the common humanity of all people, right? And so in South Africa, when Africa, the concept of Ubuntu, which is basically the notion that um, a person is a person through other people of our common humanity, um, yeah, the Rainbow Nation was, was a symbol. Rainbowism was a symbol of, of our primordial Africanness and our primordial wholeness as individuals, but also as a nation. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, it was all those things. And um, I actually get, whenever I think about it, when I speak about it in this way, I do feel quite emotional about it because um, it remains a myth and a fantasy and a rhetoric and a slogan. And to some extent, we have moved on from it. Um, but in many ways, I, I think it's still part of the, the, the many broken promises um, of democracy that, that, that still haunt us to today. Mm, that was a good overview, too, of the promises that the concept of rainbowism made, which were almost in a way unattainable. Like maybe like hundreds of years later would be the ideal of what that could reach. But so much healing, so much reconciliation, so many generations would need to pass in order to purge a society of a system that guided it for so long. And that resonates a lot with what the United States is going through as well um, with regards to its inability to have a truth and reconciliation about um, you know the indigenous history of this continent, the history of enslavement on this continent. And so I'm seeing a little bit of parallels, but in your way and my and our way over here is just slightly different. Um, so I'm curious about the religious plurality landscape as South Africa went through the truth and reconciliation procedures a few decades back and what they're like today. I don't know much about the spiritual landscape of the country as a whole, and I'm wondering if there are any easy to disseminate facts that you know about what the country is like as far as like religious plurality breakdown goes. Okay. So the country is considered predominantly a Christian country, right? A Christian majority country. But what that means is, um, is, is obviously quite complicated because in African traditional religion, um, or African traditional religions, we should speak about it in the plural, it's part of the cultural and the ethnic identity of many South Africans. And it's quite possible to be both Christian and to be an African traditional practitioner at the same time. It's also possible for you to be Muslim and to do those things, right? So um, the, the way in which Christianity is counted um, 
can't be as as a homogenous reflection of of the the religious reality of peoples right so mm-hmm. on the one hand the statistics will give you anything from you know 80 to 90% christian um and then we have what i would refer to as visible minorities um so the muslim population in south africa is extremely small in comparison to to the to the actual, um, you know, in terms of population numbers, I think they constitute about 2% of the population, but the Muslim population is a visible minority, um, you know, have been a part of South African society for centuries. Um, And so in many ways are also part of the indigenous religious landscape, Um, much the same for, for the Hindu community. So another small Um, but visible minority. I believe that South Africa has the largest population of Indian people who live outside of the Indian continent, um, actually live in South Africa and um, in one one of our provinces. So um, the five main religions that would um, be counted really on the census in South Africa would be Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and then African traditional religion. Um, But African traditional religion really can't be counted just on its own because many Christians and many Muslims are also um, practitioners of, of, of the religion. I'm wondering what it's like today. Has the religious landscape changed in the last few decades since the truth and reconciliation procedures have gone through? Does the country continue to become more religiously plural or is it sort of is it staying the same? So from 1996, the new constitution comes into play. And for the first time, it promises religious freedom, right? Um, Before, religious freedom was promised in the apartheid state, but it was nominal religious freedom because the state um, had a religious identity. So the apartheid state said, um, you have religious freedom, but this is actually a Christian state. So that, that's not real religious freedom, according to the, um, to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, right? So what happens in 1996 is that the new constitution comes into play and religious freedom um, in its widest, most possible application is granted to all South Africans and it becomes part of the character of the country, right? Um, the state no longer has a religion. Um, that doesn't mean that it erases its Christo-normative inclinations, but it is what it is. Um, so what happens is that we see that the, the religious constitution essentially stays the same. Christianity is still in the majority, although we do see that Christianity begins to change with the global exchanges of information. So we see an influx of Pentecostalism coming into the country, largely Mm. influenced by American evangelists and their relationship with the media. So we see a large influx of of Pentecostalism. We also see a number of independent churches, um, also of the Pentecostal persuasion, but with a very um, distinctly African Um, with an African edge to it, so to speak. So lots of independent churches um, cropping up. It's actually been quite problematized in the media and and even at the level of governance um, in recent years. We also see visibility being granted to a number of kind of minority religions that were literally... um, just didn't have the space to for expression during the apartheid era. So those include new religious movements, so to speak, such as Wicca, paganism. Um, there's even a vampire community in South Africa who have registered themselves um, as a part of have, have registered registered themselves as religious as as religions. Um, we see that the Satanist community is also alive and growing. 
um, despite the fact that the apartheid state had a severe um, aversion to Satanism, they had, a, you know, they were struck by satanic panic in the early 1990s and the late 1980s and the early 1990s, like the rest of the world. Um, so you see a growth, a kind of organic growth of, of newer religious movements, um, but the landscape to a large extent stays the same, um, although greater freedom is, is granted. Excellent. Well, I read some examples of things that happen in South Africa with regards to challenges facing pluralism and the, you know, coexistence of religious communities in in the society. Like from noise complaints about the call to prayer, complaints about halal labeling on food. These are like these are some some interesting examples to point out and I'm wondering if there is an increasing trend in complaining about things that seem very like like they previously were not even an issue whatsoever and now people are are complaining about them because that's what it seems like to me it seems like these things co- like happened for years and years and now we're complaining about them um are is there like a, an increase in those things happening yeah, I think that there's both an increase in those things happening and an increase on reporting on uh, on these issues happening, right? Um, so I think that what's important for us to, to remember is that um, specifically when it comes to Islam, um, with the kind of increase in, I suppose, mission-oriented Pentecostal Christianity, mm-hmm. um, also in terms of, um, and you know, like any kind of, of, of any kind of violence or um, suppression is, is always intersectional. There's also the growth of Muslim communities from outside of South Africa, so from Upper Africa, um, as well as South Asia. Um, there have been xenophobic um, incidences. So it might not only be about religion, but it might also be um, to do with the kind of xenophobic inclinations that we see in some, some communities. Um, that, yeah, we do see that there are, are more and more not only complaints, but more and more responses to the presence of, of um, religious diversity um, in, in spaces where it was maybe before overlooked. So I think sometimes the noise complaints, for instance, have to do with property prices, right? Oh. So got to, yeah, so sometimes it's got to do with them property prices, um, and we call it um, in... Um, in South Africa, there's there's a way like people from my community. Um, it, it would be a profanity, but you can always edit it. Um, so you know the word gentrification. Mm-hmm. So they talk about gentrification, but they talk about gentry nayers. Now that means so it's basically the equivalent of being like you're a fucker, like you're a gentry fucker, right? So Got it. they talk about how um, gentrification. Um, and especially in, 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 in the urban areas here. Um, so with the increase of gentrification, um, the presence of religion is actually a bit of an inconvenience. So when you're selling, um, you're selling your, your homes to, you know, a bunch of like yuppie millennials and whatever who'd want to sleep in the call to prayer is a bit of an inconvenience. Um, you know, the, the, the complaints against halal food was also quite interesting because in response to that, um, they they developed a Christian friendly food label, so uh, there was yeah. another uh, another commodity w- was created. Um, so you know, um, economics also does play a role <laughs> does play a role in it, and sometimes the the bottom line is actually the bottom line money. 
Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that Christian friendly products movement? Because it's, it's some of the, some of the terms and the quotes that are on these products were very shocking to me. Yeah. So the Christian friendly movement comes from a, a group that is a predominantly white Afrikaans group. Um, so again, that's a, that's a racial minority in South Africa, but they were the racial minority that ran the country from 1948 to the late 1990s, to the, sorry, the late, late 1980s. So um, yeah, the, the, the Christian friendly products movement is a group of individuals who, who want to reclaim South Africa for Christ. Um, and they see Islam as the, the, the biggest threat against um, Christianity in South Africa. And what they've done is they've lobbied. Um, so, they see, so they see halal food as an affront to their, to their freedom of religion and their religious dignity. Um, and they lobby, um, they lobby retailers to not stock halal food. And um, that's what they do. And they encourage Christians to not consume halal food on you know, theological grounds. So um, that is their work, but also in response, they want to offer an alternative. And the alternative that they offer is to have their food labeled as Christian friendly or to buy Christian friendly products. So um, it is an exercise in, in boycotting, I suppose, and divestment in, in, in some ways. Um, and yeah, that's the, the Christian friendly products um, movement. It's, it is quite... I don't think it's as well publicized. Um, it's been reported kind of in the sensationalist way that the media often does. So once or twice it's been mentioned and people have kind of laughed it off. Um, but when, you know, I did deeper explorations of the work, like they've actually managed to gain quite a following and they've managed to convince retailers not to stock halal food. And so the movement is growing and it's not only an Afrikaans, a white Afrikaans movement anymore. Um, it's more diverse in, in, in its reach. So these are the kinds of, um, I suppose the kinds of violences against religious diversity and the presence of religious diversity in public that I'm interested in watching and as calling out as more serious than, um, more serious than we, we we tend to take it, right? We we like to believe that it's only a small movement or a group of 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 maybe um, a group of silly people, but actually um, there are quite serious implications. Are there any examples that you have heard of somewhat recently that you haven't had a chance to write on yet that you're paying attention to? So what am I paying attention to? So outside of the outside of the the um, outside of Islam or the example of Islam, the the mar the legalization of marijuana in South Africa has recently um, has recently just really blown up. Um, legislation has been passed. The legislation is quite complicated, but for the first time, it seems like marijuana products are. Are, are more legally acceptable. And I say more legally acceptable because the legislation is still not clear. But what's happening is that a massive industry is developing around, um, around marijuana and, and products. And it's so funny to say marijuana because in South Africa, marijuana is dacha. 
It's just that plain. <laughs> it is Dacha. There's even records of them using that word like in the House of Parliament in the 19 like 40s. It's part of like our indigenous language, but it's called Dacha. So um, I'm, I'll say Dacha. I can't even say marijuana. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway. So, so, so Dacha, there's this whole industry, it's cannabis products, and it's already like it's a multi-million dollar industry in South Africa. Um, but the people who are being excluded from, from, from this are the religious communities, the indigenous religious communities for whom Dacha has been a part of their religious rights and practices for centuries, and they were criminalized for, for, for so long, and they were degraded for so long for the use of the uh, of Dacha, right? For, 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 for using the product as medicine, for using it as, as a part of the, the, the religious ceremonies. And they're being excluded from this multi, multi-million dollar industry. And these are poor communities, and these are suffering communities, and these are communities that operate on the margins of society. Um, and there's just no justice there. And um, those who own the economy are once more, um, they're, yeah, they're, they're the ones who own the economy. It's the private sector, right? And the private sector is, is predominantly white still. And um, it's predominant, yeah, and it's predominantly Christian. So, um, yeah, so that, that I still need to explore in, in, in more detail. But um, the, the exclusion of uh, indigenous religious communities from the Dacha or the marijuana economy in South Africa is, 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 is another area of religious diversity that I'm, I'm going to be exploring. And I'll be spending my time with the largest, um, the largest settlement of Rastafarians outside of Ethiopia. So outside of Ethiopia, I'll be spending two or three days with them in December, um, just chilling with the community and learning more about what it is that they are doing at the moment, but also um, learning more and more about what they, how they would like to, to respond to the exclusion and how they would like the media, but also how they would like scholars to help them um, think through think through um, the ways in which to to kind of um, lobby for justice. So, I'm yeah, and I'm curious about your your work with sacred rights as well. So knowing your history of media and documentary and filmmaking, and now your scholarship angle, and now your partnership with the sacred rights public scholarship cohort, uh, I'm wondering how you're finding that experience and the trainings that are being offered and some of the experiences that you're getting that are going to kind of inform the next several years of your scholarship. Um, how have you found that so far? So I think I, I said this to Megan, Liz, and so they'll get a kick out of this. First thing I found about was it was very American. So I needed to do a lot of work in order to oh. understand the material because all the references are from American popular culture or from, you know, like the, 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 there's a language, um, there's, there's a culture. The, yeah, there's a discourse that, that for me was a little bit less penetrable because it's not a part of like, you know, like my, my everyday 
um, kind of like intellectual engagement. Um, but it's been it's been really, really rewarding, right? Because I have some background in this, but I haven't thought about I hadn't thought about it as seriously as I'd wanted to think about it. I'd also not been able to position myself and and part of what the, the training has allowed me to do is also just to understand my own expertise beyond the topics of of the work that I'm doing, right? Yeah. And that, that has been like extremely, extremely empowering. Um, also, uh, I think for me, what's been a really kind of interesting, um, an interesting part, an interesting addition, what's been an interesting addition to my pedagogy has been as I'm learning about how to do public scholarship in a more deliberate way, I can also teach my students how to do public scholarship in a yeah. more deliberate way and in so doing actually create a culture of public scholarship with this new generation of students that i'm engaging so all of my students are either doing masters or doing their phds they're doing really really important work um and 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 yeah, the skills that I'm learning, I can pass on to them. So, you know, we are playing around with the podcast. Uh, we read together, we talk about it, and we, you know, we record that and edit that as a podcast. And that's been that's been a really amazing part of us learning together. Um, so it's been a decolonial kind of learning practice for, for us. And I actually do theorize this in a paper where I talk about, like, you know, it has a feminist pedagogy. Um and 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 yeah so so that's been that's been really not just rewarding but it's just it's really been empowering to be able to take these skills and to help it hone like my own thinking but also to to learn about it with my students by sharing what i've learned with them and for us to like really be deliberate about producing public scholarship from all of our kind of traditional um, academic outputs so um, for me, it's been about developing my voice and understanding my expertise beyond just the, the work that I do, <laughs> the work that I do. Um, but also it's given me, me confidence to, to, to actually start to steer that conversation. So instead of just responding, um, you know, to, to matters in public, to, to just be smart in public. So to start mm. that conversation. So, um, yeah, I haven't done much yet. I think the podcast has been, you know, the podcast that we're working on or the podcasting that we're working on because we're still so much in process has been like a really big <clears throat> outcome for us. Um, but, you know, we also have to acknowledge that we've been working in extraordinary times when I did Sacred Rights. Um, it was in the middle of the pandemic, obviously. Um, my family and I tested positive for the second time Mm. while I was doing sacred rights. So exactly a year before we had tested positive, we tested positive again. Um, during the time that I was doing sacred rights, we entered into a period, an extended period of rolling blackouts where there were just days that we didn't have electricity for a couple of hours and I'm working with colleagues in the US and it's crazy. And besides that, also we had the first what we believe was a military or an attempted coup on the state. There were eight days in July that one of our provinces was just completely lawless. And yeah, we, we thought that there was an uprising against, you know, against the presidency and things got really dangerous um, where we had to think about like, you know, like where we would be or if we would survive this. And although it didn't happen in the province that I lived in, 
we had family and students and people who who, who lived in that province and the 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 possibility of the violence spreading was actually very real. Um, it was the, it was, you know, my parents always warned us or not, yeah, when, when apartheid ended, I remember my father telling us to expect civil war, right? And we all believed that the TRC halted that civil war. But, and, and I know that many, you know, people have theorized this, Mahmoud um, Mamdani, so many, so many amazing um, post-colonial scholars, they theorized this, right? You know, that there has to be this time of, of, of violence to, to kind of cleanse and so you can move on. And so we always knew we were the miracle with South Africa, right? That we, we had this peaceful transition. And for, for eight days in, in July, um, you know, we, I think a lot of us, we believed that it had caught up with us, that that civil war, that that violent uprising that would spread on a national level, that it had happened. So all of this happened and, you know, still doing sacred rites, still living your life, still having to do the school run, still having to write your papers. And so it was just a crazy time to, to be doing something um, that really felt like a lot of fun. And I think was really, re and I know was extremely rewarding. Um, and to, to be able to network and to build networks with these scholars that I hope one day we, I will be able to meet in person and to hug and to, you know, thank for their time. That was just a great experience. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, you know, I'm going to be following more of your work in the future, <laughs> but I'm wondering if you can give listeners a, a place to go and check out your work and follow you. Do you have any um, links or anything like that that you would like to promote for those listening out there? Oh, thank you so much. So you can just Google uh, the Desmond Tutu Center for Religion and Social Justice um, and we will come up and all my work is usually posted to, to the website over there. Um, otherwise, the, you know, like I'm, my publication should also be available on most um, databases. I'm not quite active on Twitter, but I plan to be more active on Twitter. So you can follow me on LS Udemans um, and you can find me there. But otherwise, if you can give my, my email address, I love having conversations with people. Um, I think you'll, you can tell that I like to talk. I've spoken yeah. a lot. I love it. <laughs> Maybe a little bit too much. Not at all. But, Not at all. Uh, oh, fantastic. Um, but you can email me. And if anybody wants to come to Cape Town or if you're in Cape Town, we don't have to talk about religion. Uh, you can just come and I'll make you like a nice curry or we'll show you some cool spots to hang out in. Some of our favorite things to do is to show other people this beautiful country. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a real and genuine invitation. That's Excellent. a real, real invitation. Yeah. I, I would love to go. I'm, uh, you know, whenever I've never been, uh, the oh. only, the only places I've been on the African continent or on the other side of the continent, I went to Morocco briefly and then also the Canary yeah. islands, um, which are oh, far wow. off the coast. Yeah. So, um, I oh, do wow. have a lot of, I do have a lot of traveling yet to do hopefully in my life, but, um, I'll remember well, that. What we can try and do is we can try and bring you down as a as a public as a public scholarship expert. Oh goodness! Um, the podcasting industry in South Africa is in its infancy, so we can try and bring you down. We can try and bring you down to come and train us. So that would be pretty cool, hey? But we'll oh make you work hard, but we'll take good care of you. <laughs> Maybe we can bring uh, Dr. Megan Goodwin and Dr. Elise Morgenstein first, also because they are also tremendously talented podcasters. 
Oh no, they're gonna have like they they're gonna have to have long extended stays with no holiday time at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Lise Shardik Udemans, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas and telling me so many amazing stories about your path through media, your path through higher education, how those two worlds sort of have combined and collided into this beautiful array of work that you're doing to report on you know, the religious plurality of your country. I've learned so much just from our brief interactions and from reading your work. So I'm just delighted to partner with you and that you're here. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas and hanging out with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful experience.